Let's open our Bibles together. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Now, I'm asking a question as I'm reading this passage. What is happening right now? It seems like in our culture that a lot of people are breaking up with the church. I did some review of statistics from 2022, and I was looking at church participation, in-person participation. There was a study done in, in churches across America, something like churches that are doing well with in-person attendance, they're down something like 20% in their attendance pre-COVID. Churches that are doing really not good are down 60%, and the nationwide average is churches are down 28% in in-person attendance. If you look at it through the cross-section of the millennial Gen Z generation, they were asked in a Barna study, do you intend to come back to church after this pandemic? 40% of them indicated they would. The other 60% indicated that they intended to mainly do church online. Even pastors one study I was looking at, this was again a Barnett study, said that, now prepare yourself for this, 38% of pastors right now are contemplating leaving the ministry. 38%? And there's also a nationwide pastoral shortage. So churches are looking for pastors. They can't find pastors. The two positions that seem to be the most challenging to find across the country right now is a worship pastor or a youth pastor. So if you've been asking why has it seemed like the search process here has been delayed or slow, well, there's some of the answer for you on that. So what's happening? Why is this happening? Well, I think there are several reasons for it, but I want to focus in on one reason that I think is particularly true. I think that the church and consumerism developed an unhealthy codependency. You know, as you look at the text this morning that we're going to be looking at in Ephesians 4, we're going to see in the text that the church thrives on interdependency and it dies when it becomes a consumable. The cultural force of consumerism has been pulling at the large C church in America for decades now. And what I would suggest is it's caused churches to lose focus, to kind of cater to the demands of consumerism and to experience what is called mission drift. You see, in some ways, we've made the church like McDonald's. We've made it like Walmart and Netflix. It's a consumable. So like good consumers, we base our decision to attend a church on certain factors. There's multiple choices. Now I make a checklist for why I'm attending a church. Like, is the preaching top shelf? Does the music really resonate with me? Uh, do they have programs that are good for my children, good for myself? Do I feel like my needs are being met? Now, I'm not singling out anyone in particular. I think a lot of us have based a decision on church attendance around this. I think in some ways I've done this. And I also said that this is a codependency, meaning that 
Church leaders know that there's a checklist out there, and church leaders respond by organizing the church according to the checklist. We need to find a rock star preacher. We need to find top-shelf staff, high-performing staff. We need to have the best kind of music out there. All of this, of course, is leading to this codependency. Now, there are two problems when we approach the church with consumerism. The first problem is this. Consumers are fickle. They're fickle. You know, we consume one thing for a while and then we kind of move on to the next thing. For example, I used to be a McDonald's guy. I mean, that was my fast food of choice, but now, you know, I just kind of like the style of Chick-fil-A, so I've migrated over there. Or 15 years ago, I was into AMC movie theaters. I would show up, see the big box films, throw my like 30 bucks for two people into the register and uh, had a great experience. But you know what? I'm more of a Netflix person now. I am. I mean, that's just more my style. I can pull up anything I want to watch at home. It's great. Now, here's the thing about consumerism. I think we're fickle with consumerism because consumerism isn't ultimately fulfilling. I mean, the last time that you binge-watched that show on Netflix, let's be honest, you didn't feel fulfilled. You may have felt a little grimy. Like, you know, maybe I need to get out of these clothes that are all Cheeto-stained right now. But you did not feel fulfilled. No one's going to come to your funeral one day and say, oh, you know, they were really into the office. They loved the office. And your kids in 10 years or 15 years from now, when they're walking through the metaverse, are going to think it was really weird that you used to watch shows on Netflix. (laughs) It's not ultimately fulfilling. I think because of this codependency, that it's caused a lot of people to start asking the question, do I have a place in the church? Because when the church becomes consumable, then all of a sudden the church becomes a stage. And there's things that are happening on Sunday morning. I come into the church. Sometimes I'm moved by what's happening and I'm inspired by it. And let's be honest, other times I'm like, when is this guy going to stop talking? But according to Ephesians 4, Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew what the church really was designed to be. The church is not something that we consume. It's something that we create. It's a place of purpose. It's a place of empowerment. It's a place of interdependency. And we'll see that in the text this morning. So let's pick up verse 7, and we'll read through verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all 
attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now let's go back to verse 7 first and look at what Paul says. Grace was given to each one of us according to the gift or the measure of Christ's gift. He moves on into verse 8. And there you'll notice that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's applying Psalm 68, 18 to the ascension of Christ. In the ancient world, there was this dynamic that would take place when a conquering force would come into a city and when they were victorious. The conqueror was given tribute. The conqueror would then take that tribute and distribute the tribute as gifts to their own people. That's basically what Paul is saying that Christ did. You see, Christ came and he laid down his life at the cross, and that is actually what appears to be a moment of defeat for Christ, was actually a moment of Christ conquering sin and death on the cross. In fact, it tells us in the Bible that in that space and in that place, Christ conquered Satan and his evil forces. If you look back at Colossians 2, 13-15, Paul said this, God made you alive together with Him who? Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So there's the victory right there at the cross. The resurrection is the proof of victory. The ascension is the place where he distributes the gifts. Now in Acts 1.8, Jesus actually said this of his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now what does all this mean in the context of this passage? What I'm going to tell you this morning is it means that the church is a place of purpose. It's a place where you discover these gifts that Christ has told us that he is giving us. It's a place that even though it's said earlier in Ephesians, we are one, it's not a place where we're all a bunch of replicas of one another. We're not mass-produced in some heavenly factory, spit out duplicates, saying the same thing, acting the same way, and having the same gifts. No, according to this passage, we are one, but we're not all the same. There's a diversity amongst the gifts. And each person here, each one of you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, has a spiritual gift. Now, I want to focus on the words each one. 
Because, you know, sometimes we use language like that person is anointed. And I know we mean it in a sincere and honest way, but it almost sounds like this person has more of a measure of the Holy Spirit than the next Christian does. But as I look at the Scriptures here in Ephesians 4, other spiritual gift passages like 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us that anointing is the birthright of all believers. We all have gifts of the Spirit that are meant to be exercised for the purpose of ministry. So let's ask the question, what is a spiritual gift? I like this definition. A spiritual gift, they are abilities that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry. So through your gifts, the Spirit himself touches people. He cares for them. He ministers to them and he speaks to them. Now, the analogy that Paul uses later in verses 14 and 15 is a great analogy. It describes the people of the church being incorporated together like a body. So we're the body. And we have various functions that are utilized for the work of the ministry. And who is the head? Who? It's Christ. Okay, so Christ works through the body to accomplish his will in the earth. I love how J.D. Greer explains this. When the brain notices that the left shoulder or left elbow has an itch, the brain sets out its will by undergoing a set of functions, right? It does not send magic brain powers down to the elbow to extinguish the itch. No. What does the brain do? It sends a message to the right arm and the right hand and the right fingers and then the fingers extinguish the itch. So the brain is accomplishing its will through the fingers and the fingers really cannot function at all without the brain. When we think about Jesus and his ministry in this world right now, that's how he's working. He's working through his people. It's not so much that we're working for him as much as he is working through us. Christ is the head. He's working through the body. Now let's get a little more practical. As we think about that, then we have to ask the question, well, how do I discover this gift? The Bible's saying I have a spiritual gift. I want to be able to use that gift. Some of us are kind of like on a journey or something where we're trying to discover what it is. How do I know what my spiritual gift is? Well, I think there are some principles that can help us really understand how to discover my gift and utilize my gift. The first principle is that we recognize our spiritual gifts when we are unusually effective in a responsibility given to all believers. Let me explain it like this. There are certain things in the Bible where we're all told to do it, right? You should be telling people about Jesus. You should be praying. You should be generous. You should be merciful. But here's the thing. Some of us have more effectiveness. There are some people in the area of evangelism that even though I'm told that I should be telling others about Jesus in my sphere of influence, it just seems like God blesses them. They have the spiritual gift of evangelism. So that is one way we discern it. 
Here's a second principle. We discover our gifts by pursuing those responsibilities. Gifts are normally discovered while doing. It normally happens like this. You do something. You find it particularly energizing. You're effective at it, and others see you, and they confirm that within you. I want to suggest this morning that gifts are not normally, they don't normally come to us via inspiration while we're sitting on the couch. That's not how the gifts normally come to us. Why? Because on the couch, I can't really particularly feel energized. I'm not very effective, and I don't get to see you doing what you're good at. No, normally speaking, I just have to start doing something. And then God speaks to me along the way. Now, maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've tried to discover your gift and you used a spiritual gift inventory. I see nothing wrong with spiritual gift inventories. I think they're helpful in some ways. But I don't think they're as effective as the tried and true, which is you know, trust God and start doing things and watch God bless it. Think of it like this. How did Christians, like hundreds of years ago, discover their gifts? Did they pull out the spiritual gift inventory and start looking for, oh, I must have the gift of teaching and leadership. And, you know, if I go to the Sunday school classroom, I can check it out and see if, no. (laughs) They just did something. Here's a third principle. Our spiritual gifts are normally found within a confluence of what, our, our, our what we're passionate about, what we're good at, and the affirmation of others. So I have a diagram that will be on the screen, and notice these three circles, and at the center of those three circles is that confluence point. That's your spiritual gifts. And we have abilities, we have affinities, And we also receive affirmation. So abilities. What are you particularly good at? Maybe you're great with organization skills, administrative skills, communication skills, affinities. What are you passionate about in the church? What are you passionate about that's happening outside of the church within the broader mission of God? Well, maybe you could take those organization skills and apply those to that particular area. Affirmation. How have people told you in the past that God used you in their lives? What was it that you did? You see, as you look at Scripture, there's three primary passages on the spiritual gifts. You have 1 Corinthians 12, you have Romans 12, here Ephesians 4. I want to notice something about these passages when you put them together. In each passage, Paul lists various spiritual gifts. Now, you'll notice when you look at them that none of the lists are identical. Each contains a few that the others leave out. So what should we take away from it? Well, I like what this author suggests. He says, we're not to list out these gifts as a spreadsheet and assume they comprise the full scope of all that God empowers his people to do. 
Each list simply gives examples of how God works through his people, identifying the most significant ways that God is at work in the church. So each of you has natural abilities that I believe God intends to supercharge for the sake of his purposes. And when you use your gifts, the ministry of the church prospers. He, he does incredible things, and in through you, the church grows. You start reaching the community when every member realizes his or her full potential and pursues it with passion, you see God do some really, really cool things. So how does this come about? Well, we're going to look at the next part. You see, the church is a place of purpose when the church is a place of empowerment. Now, in verse 11... Paul lists five primary leadership gifts in the church. He describes apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd pastors, and teaching, teachers. Let me kind of describe each of these functions to you as best as I understand them. The apostles and prophets, I want to suggest that Paul is describing foundational gifts here. Foundational so these were offices that Christ used when he was first launching the church. Think uppercase A apostle. We know there's 12 of them in the scriptures. And then the apostle Paul. Think prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit and they wrote down inspired scripture. So we have the Bible today because of the work that the apostles did and the prophets did. John Stott, taking this view, writes, in this sense, so hear those words, in this sense, we must insist that there are no prophets today. Nobody can presume to claim, to claim an inspiration comparable to that of the canonical prophets or use their introductory formula, thus says the Lord, because if this were possible, we would have to then add to the words of Scripture. And the whole church would need to listen and obey. So in that sense, we don't have the apostles and prophets today. But there may, I, I believe, there is actually a prophetic gift that is still exercised in the church. It's just different than what he's talking about here. Let's talk evangelists. Evangelists are used by God to greatly expand the church. So think of those who have been particularly effective at making the gospel plain and relevant to unbelievers. You might even think of someone like a church planter who starts with essentially no one in they win people to Christ, and then a church, a new church is formed. Pastors and shepherds are used by God to provide oversight and leadership to the church. So that's what the elders of this church do. That's what the pastors do. They exercise leadership. They nurture and care for the flock of God. They manage the church. And teachers explain reinforce, and apply the Word of God. Now, one little nuance here with a teacher. In the Bible, my understanding is that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So, there's plenty of members in a church that have the spiritual gift of teaching and should be 
exercising that gift, and they may or may not be a pastor. That's okay. Now, as we put all of this together, notice what Paul says about these leadership gifts. He's saying that Christ gave these leadership gifts for a big reason. And here's a little hint. It wasn't for the leaders to be doing everything themselves. When leaders do all of the work themselves, they become the bottleneck of the church. The church can't grow. The church can't expand. The church can't realize its full potential. When leaders begin to do everything within the church, the church turns into a stadium. It's like a pro sporting event. 20,000 people who desperately need exercise watch 20 people who desperately need rest. It doesn't work like that. It was never meant to work like that. No, Paul says that leaders are meant to equip. You see, if everyone in this church who has trusted Christ has a spiritual gift, then it's the leadership's job to help you discover your gift, develop your gift, utilize your gift. In fact, I like to think of it like this. When I accepted the call to become a pastor, on that very day, I left the ministry. I'm no longer a minister. Now my job description is to be an equipper. I loved ministry. Before I was a pastor, I served in youth programs. I did ministry out in the community. I did tons and tons of ministry. And even today, you know, hear me rightly here, I do still do ministry. I still do things. I love to serve. I'm not above any of those things. It is an immense blessing to do ministry. But I am bottlenecking the church if I'm not helping you discover your gifts so that you can do the ministry. It causes me to start asking myself some fundamental questions every time there's something that needs to be done, whether outside of the church or inside of the church. One, if I do this, am I going to rob someone else of the blessing of doing this? And let me just be clear, every act of ministry is a blessing. Serving God, fulfilling His purposes in your life, it's a huge blessing. There's no role within the church that's too small for you, and there's nothing that's too big for you if God calls you to do it. Another question I like to ask myself is, if I do this, am I limiting the potential? Because there's obviously someone out there that's better at this than I am, <laughs> okay? I'm telling you, in your area of giftedness, you are far more effective than I could be if I don't have that gift. And you know what? 99% of the time when I ask those two questions, the answer to the question is, yes, there's someone else that should be doing this. Stay in your lane, Wheeler. You're supposed to be preaching. You do that. You do this leadership thing. You equip people, and you find someone that can do this really well, and you unleash them to do it really well. Two ways that you can use your gifts, two ways you can do ministry, I'm convinced that ministry happens inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church, the main vehicle of ministry should be discipleship. 
members should be discipling one another. You look through the New Testament and there are all these passages about one another. Love one another, care for one another, serve one another, disciple one another. That's the role. We should be strengthening one another. There are people who have been journeying with Christ for longer. They have experience. There's been people who have not been journeying with Christ as long. They need to be linked up with that person. Notice that Paul talks about there's a danger element when we don't fulfill that function. He says that you would be children. We know how naive children can be. They can talk be talked into almost anything. And we live in a world right now that is what? Topsy-turvy. He says that there are craftiness, uh, deceitfulness in this world. There's cunning in this world. People can be easily deceived. I like to think of it like this. Walking along in this world without other believers is like walking alone in whiteout blizzard conditions. So easy to get lost in that. So easy to have no sense of your bearing or where you are, or where you're heading, or where you should be going. But what happens when I tether myself to another person or a group of people that know where they're heading and what they're about? Well, now, when I get distracted, or when I think that's home, I have someone pulling and tugging me and saying, no, 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 that's home. And we know that's home because the Bible tells us that's home. Now, ministry also happens outside of the church. We do this kind of ministry by doing good deeds in the name of Jesus and telling others about Jesus. I mean, think of the outreach, the external outreach of the church as being the legs of the church. And let me ask you, class, how many legs do we have? Five. <laughs> I'm going to send people back to school today. Two. Two legs. You need to use them both. One leg is the mercy work of the church. This is doing good deeds in the name of Jesus. This is having a heart for the community. This is meeting those pressing and urgent needs within the community that go unmet unless someone sees them and recognizes them and in the best way they know how, responds. The other leg is the evangelistic ministry of the church telling others about Jesus. What did Paul say? He said, how can they hear unless someone tells them? So it takes someone, and here's the thing. You happen to be that someone for somebody. There are people within our spheres of influence that unless I rise to the occasion and I seek to build a relationship with them and have spiritual conversations and trust the Lord to work, they're not going to hear about Jesus. You're the somebody. The church needs to walk on both legs. When the church doesn't use any of its legs, either leg, it doesn't move. But it looks really awkward, too, when it's hopping around on one of the legs. You know, churches tend to become extreme in one direction when it comes to outreach. They're either kind of socially oriented they just want to do good deeds in the name of Jesus. Or they're evangelistically oriented. They just want to tell people 
about Jesus. But I'm telling you, when you choose one or the other and they're not in balance, you're hopping around on one leg. And the church is not being as effective as it could be because those two things feed one another. Now, as we look at the last part of this passage, I want to read those verses to you again. This is verses 15 and 16, and here we're going to see some, another truth about the church. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when you join a church, you enter into a spiritual greenhouse with other Christians. Let's be clear on some things. One, you and I are dependent on Christ. He's the head. He's Lord. We can do nothing without Him. We've already established that. We are, though, interdependent on one another. Look at the language. We grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it what? Builds itself up. That's the interconnectivity of the church, and it's a perfect analogy for how growth happens. The body grows itself. When I, the church member, and you, the church member, commit to one another, exercise our spiritual gifts, guess what happens? Everybody grows. This isn't a zero-sum game. Some losers, some winners. No, this is everybody wins kind of game. It only becomes the zero-sum game when church members focus on themselves, do not use their gifts, and consume the church. Then the body is harmed. You know what we call those kind of cells in a body? Cancer. Now, I will never call a human being cancer. Every human is made in the image of God. What I am talking about here is an attitude. And what happens when this attitude grows within a church? It becomes a place that no one's proud of. No one. You don't see people growing. You don't see Jesus in people. You see bickering and infighting and, and all those things that are just so destructive and no one wants to be a part of that. But what happens when the church builds itself up? Then everyone grows. Then you see Jesus in other people and people come into the church or when the church is going outside of the walls and they see Jesus and you get the immense blessing of Jesus working through you. So I, I asked you a question at the beginning. I intend to answer the question, do you have a place in the church? The answer obviously is yes, you do. And you want to know how I know that? It's because you happen to be the church. It's you. And when we choose to be the church, then the church becomes the place of purpose and empowerment and interdependence that the Holy Spirit intends for the church to be. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so grateful 
for your word. As I shared just earlier, walking through this world is like walking through a blizzard in whiteout conditions. We need leadership. We need a guide. Thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that Jesus is our leader. And we want to be faithful fulfilling our purpose, Lord, as the church. We want to discover your purposes for us. Lord, as a leader of this church, I want to empower. I want to see people equipped. I want to see them feel alive as they serve and minister in your name. And Lord, we thank you for the interdependence of this church. I see it all the time. People loving one another. People caring for one another. Young, old, different stages of their walk in Christ, getting together face to face, talking about Jesus, growing in Jesus. That's what it's all about. And this passage says that the primary purpose of all of this is that we would grow to look like you. And that's what I want, Lord, for all of us. So thank you, Lord. Work through us. Do your thing that only you can do in and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.